before we get to our scripture reading, I have to tell you, when we were singing that last song, I just closed my eyes for a moment and just imagined what it would be like to be in the throne room of God, surrounded by myriads of, myriads of angels and saints, all singing, holy, 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 behold our God, seated on the throne. Would that be awesome or what? Amen. If you please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts. Our scripture reading today will be Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16. If you're using the Black Pew Bible in front of you, um, you'll find this passage on page 926. Once again, that's Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16. Now, while, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who conversed with him and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing of something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by, by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think the divine, that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And, and of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we stand before you 
gathered here to praise you and worship you, to give you thanks and praise for what you have done in us and for us. We recognize that you are still seated on the throne. You reign with power and majesty. You are ruler and judge over all, and yet you are gracious and merciful. For while we were still sinners, you provided a way of salvation to all of us who would repent and believe by sending Christ to die for us and by raising him from the dead. We now pray for Pastor Toby as he comes to preach that you would empower him with your spirit and that you give him the words to speak with power and conviction. And I pray that our hearts and minds would be open to receive those words and truly change us to be more like Christ. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What a glorious song that is, isn't it? Behold our God. And what a glorious truth that the God of whom we sing has revealed Himself to us. For we never would have found Him had He not revealed Himself to us. We're in a series called Our God Is looking at some of the more awe-inspiring attributes of God. And today, we come to contemplate the truth that our God is independent. Now, independent is a word we understand. Someone or something is said to be independent when they don't rely on anyone or anything outside itself. In grammar, you have an independent clause which is a set of words that forms a complete idea, a complete sentence. It stands on its own. It needs no help. In business, there's a difference between having someone as an employee and an independent contractor. There are certain things the employee relies on from the company, which the independent contractor does not rely on. We speak of children needing to become independent when they reach adulthood, not relying on mom and dad to do everything for them, to supply everything, not even a basement in which to live. We think about our nation's history and the Declaration of Independence, that we established ourselves as a nation among nations, supplying our own government, our own laws, our own military. We all understand what it means to be independent. But actually, when we use that word, we only use it in a relative sense. Because there is no truly independent person. There is no truly independent person business. There is no truly independent nation. There is only one who is truly independent, not dependent, not relying on anyone or anything outside himself. There is only one who requires no hope, only one who stands complete in 
and of himself, and that is God. God alone is independent. The Latin phrase for this is a se, from self. So theologians speak of the aseity of God. It means that God is independent. He is self-existent. He relies on no one outside himself. John 5 tells us God has life in himself. And you can't say that about anyone else or anything else in the entire universe. God alone needs no one to sustain him. He needs nothing to replenish him. He needs nothing to keep him going. He needs no boost of caffeine in the morning. He does not need assistance. He doesn't need a nap. He never grows tired or weary. He needs nothing. He exists, period. He exists, ah, say. He exists in and of himself. When God reveals himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, he does it with this name. I am who I am, which could be translated, I will be what I will be. It is a name that, that itself points to something about God, that he simply is, that his existence, his character, his being are determined by no one outside himself. God is independent. Now, when we come to Acts 17, we find Paul speaking of this independent God. This independent God in contrast to all of the gods that he sees in Athens. So, we come to Acts 17. Paul's on his missionary journey. He's come here because, quite frankly, he keeps getting run out of town by angry Jews, and his friends keep saying, well, you've been here long enough, let's move you on to the next town. Oh, you've been here long enough, let's move you on. Oh, you've been here long enough, let's move on to the next town. So he gets off the boat, he stretches his legs, he starts to walk around Athens, takes it in. Uh, you know, if he had gone to the, uh, the tourist, uh, the little booth, the tourist booth, and gotten a, gotten a pamphlet, it would have told him all the wonderful architecture he could see in the city and everything like that. But all he can see as he walks around are idols. The religious life of Athens is right there on the surface. You don't have to go digging for it. None of the monuments have been taken down. What they rely on is plain to see. The prevalence of God in Athens, if you will, is much akin to the prevalence of geese in Indianapolis. They are everywhere. You can't go anywhere, and you surely can't get rid of them. You must. Well, maybe you can now. I don't know. It would be nice, wouldn't it? Somebody take care of that. Make sure that we can get rid of the geese. Uh, unless you like geese, in which case, talk to one of the other elders. All right. So, so Paul is walking through the city, and at the sight of all these gods, something happens to him. Verse 16 says, his spirit was provoked within him. He's disturbed. He's agitated. He's irritated. This is wrong. This is evil. It reminds me, and it will remind you if you were on the trip with me, when, I, when we went to see the work of Delhi Bible Institute. 
And we went to Varanasi and we went to the university campus and on it was a Hindu temple. And you go into the Hindu temple and you see all of the gods, statues, images, and people paying homage to them. And it is a disturbing sight. Not because we simply like our God better, but because it is so deceptive. And then you get on a boat, you float out in the Ganges River, and you see people dipping themselves in the Ganges River to try and wash their sins away, because that's what they've been told they need to do. And you look on the shore, and there are the bodies of people who have died being burned so that their ashes could be spread on the Ganges River as a kind of last-ditch effort to be forgiven. It is disturbing to be in the presence of a multitude of gods like that. And rather than simply shake his head and discuss, Paul is going to open his mouth to preach. He preaches in the synagogue, he preaches in the marketplace, he encounters some philosophers, and that's what ultimately takes him to the Areopagus, a kind of court for religion and moral matters. Now, it's not a formal trial he's going to, but Paul is going to do what Peter wrote about in 1 Peter chapter 3. He's going to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is within. So he's going to stand here and he's going to explain to him why it is he's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Why it is he's so disturbed. Why it is he cannot look on these gods and turn away unaffected. He's going to preach to them. And so he begins in verse 22 with an observation of the situation in Athens. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now, very religious here means uh, basically that they're sincere, that this isn't a show, that the statues and the images and the temples and the rituals, they're genuine, their hearts are in it, they're truly devoted. The gods are false, but the devotion is real. There was this, I don't know if you saw this, there was a story a couple of weeks ago about a veterinarian in Pakistan. He was a Hindu gentleman. And this Hindu in Pakistan was sending medicine to someone who need, needed it for whatever cattle or their animal or something. And he wrapped it in paper rather thoughtlessly and sent it. And it was discovered that on these papers were written verses of the Quran. And in Pakistan, he was arrested and charged with blasphemy because he wrapped the medicine in papers that had Quranic verses written on them. False teaching, real devotion. It calls one's mind, it actually causes in my own life to say, no matter what you think about that situation, do we actually take our scriptures, the very words of God, do we take them seriously? Because that's what that reflects. That you can't just do anything you want with these words. You can't just put them in a political speech and all is well. These aren't meant for self-aggrandizement or to get you into office. These are the very words of God that have been handed down to us that we might know Him truly, that we might know Jesus Christ our Savior that we might understand our sin and how to be forgiven, that we might know how to live in relationship with one another, that we might have hope in the future. Do we take 
God's word seriously? Well, we sure do when we're sitting in a place and the pastor's asking, do we take God's word seriously? Would your interaction with God's word this past week say, I take God's word seriously? Would your reading of it, would your meditating on it, would your study of it, would your obedience to it say, I don't dare treat these words lightly. So they are a very sincere bunch here in Athens. Their reverence to the supernatural is so great, in fact, they've created an idol to an unknown God. They recognize in their human capacity to understand in their human capacity, their, their ability to understand the divine is limited. And so they make this God to an unknown, this, this idol to an unknown God. So verse 23, uh, Paul's still speaking, you're very religious, for I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. As I did, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God Paul proclaims is independent, self-existent. He has life in and of himself. And what we see as we think about that in this sermon is that the independence of God distinguishes him from all other gods. Now, of course, it distinguishes him from us as well, doesn't it? Because we are completely dependent. Even without a view to the supernatural, we are dependent creatures within our families. We are dependent within society. Within this congregation, we are dependent on one another to take care of one another, to serve one another in these right kinds of ways. But ultimately, we are dependent for literally the very lives given to all of these circumstances. We are dependent on our very lives to God himself. But the point of this text is not to distinguish God from us so much as Paul wants to distinguish the one true God, the independent God, from all of these gods that he has seen. All right? So first, he points out that this independent God is not created. He creates. God is not created. He creates. This is the fundamental reality that distinguishes God from all of these other gods from any God in any place at any time. He is not created. Every other God is created. Every other God owes its existence to something outside itself, namely to some person or to some group of people. Look at verse 29. Paul says, being then God's offspring, offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being, the one he's been talking about, is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Now, if you read that too quickly, you won't see that that is a huge stab, slap in the face, punch at the entire religious atmosphere of Athens. Everything that you're worshiping, originated with your own artfulness and imagination. They come into existence. They are silver, gold, stone. The foolishness of worshiping something you create actually comes out 
in a wonderful passage in Isaiah chapter 44. Uh, Isaiah is talking about a carpenter who works with various types of wood. And what does this carpenter do? I'll read it. He takes a part of it, the wood, and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. So with half of the wood, he says, Look what I've done with this wood. With the other half of the wood, he says, What can you do for me? This is the deception and the foolishness of idolatry. It seems quite silly, doesn't it? That's not a rhetorical question. It seems quite silly, doesn't it? Yeah. Now we walk around, we don't see the statues of the people and the what of, of the gods and the whatnot and the temples. I mean there are temples, you can find them here in Indianapolis. But did you know that the art and imagination of man doesn't work with just wood when creating gods? The art and imagination of man can pick up just about anything, anything that's even good, and create something ultimate out of it. We can take something good like the provision of a career and make a god of it a God that rules our world, a God for which we will build an altar and we will lay our families on it and we will sacrifice them to the God of the career. We will take the enjoyment of our children's sports and we will deify it, rearranging our calendars, our finances, our lives to serve baseball, football, basketball, soccer. That child may never go to college, but they're playing peewee football. And maybe that will get them into college. By the way, 2% of all high school athletes actually get a scholarship to college. 0.0296% of all athletes actually make it to the pros. So sure, your kid is the exception to the rule. Okay. But can't we do that? Can't we just take up anything? It may not be our kids' sports. It may be our town sports, right? It may be the Colts and those who play for them. Oh, you mean Andrew Luck is going to be there? Well, I'm sorry, we're just going to have to skip the family time. I have to go down there. He has to sign my football, my napkin, my nose ring, whatever. <laughs> Rearrange everything. We can take the good gift of authority and make it a god so that in our homes I will do anything to make sure that I am in control of my spouse and my children and everywhere I go it will be my kingdom come or you will face my wrath. We can do it with anything. Calvin was right when he said we're just a perpetual factory of idols just a factory. 
Every God, little, little g, is created by man. But God, big G, isn't created. He creates, verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. God made it, and God rules it. God made everything, God rules everything. God's existence isn't dependent on the art and imagination of man. Man's existence is dependent on the art and imagination of God. That's how it works. You ever wonder what the glories of the human body? This is the artfulness and imagination of God. Out of nothing, this. It's amazing. It is truly amazing. Secondly, Paul describes this God as the God who does not need. He gives. God does not need. He gives. Now, the needs of the gods, this distinguishes him from the gods. Can I walk away from this? Are we using this? Okay, great. So, then I won't walk. I will lean. Um, the, the gods needed human beings, not just for their existence, but for everything. You remember that story uh, in David's lifetime? You know, the Philistines have captured the ark, right? And they put it in the temple of Dagon, right? And in the middle of the night, Dagon falls over. Well, Dagon can't get himself up. He can't put himself back in place. The people have to come in and say, whoa, what happened? There must have been an earthquake. So we pick him up, we put him back on his place. Dagon couldn't do anything. If it wasn't clear by that, the next day, Dagon's in the same position, but his head and his hands are cut off. His Dagon head and his Dagon hands <laughs> were cut off. We know how to talk about idolatry in the South, all right? <laughs> the Dagon thing fell down. That's what happened. They can't do anything. They need. If nobody comes to worship them, they get no glory. They have no value. Dear friends, God is not like that at all. God has existed from eternity past with a perfection of glory that has never been diminished and can never be increased because perfection by definition is as much as you can get. Look, you may have sat in your Sunday school class or you sat with some friends at some point and you're going to pray and so you ask you know, for, for prayer requests, right? And so needs are going around and at some point maybe at some circle you said oh you know what I don't think I need anything thank you now that's relatively speaking it, we assume that you mean there's nothing pressing right now in your life but do you know that if no matter how many times you ask what does the Lord need from us how can I pray for the Lord the answer is nothing. He needs nothing. He needs none of our prayer. If God was not independent, we'd be praying for him rather than to him. God needs nothing. Verses 24 and 25, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, 
nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So he doesn't live in temples. Now, of course, there was a temple, right? Where God would meet with his people. He said he would meet with his people. But even when it was constructed, Solomon, Solomon's mind could not wrap itself around the notion of building a temple, a house, for this God. He says in 2 Chronicles 2.6, Who is able to build him a house since heaven, even highest heaven, cannot contain him? This doesn't make sense. Why am I building a house? Well, what Solomon didn't know is the house was more for the people than the God, than God. And even more than that, the temple was more a temporary pointer to the one whose body would be the temple. It would be the very meeting place of God with man, Jesus Christ. God doesn't need our service. That's what verse 25 says. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Now that is confusing, isn't it? What do you mean he, he what do you what does that mean he's not served? Doesn't God command us to serve? Well, yes, he does. But the verb, the main verb in the New Testament that is used for service is douleuo, which is uh, related to doulos, servant. It's Paul's favorite word for himself. It means work that's done by yielding to another. Okay? So even when we serve one another, we are yielding to the needs of the other person. We are yielding our time, yielding our energy to the other, for the good of the other. But that's not the verb that's used here. This is a favorite verb of Luke's as a doctor. It's therapuo. It's most, it, this is the only time in the whole ESV translation that this verb is translated served. Most of the time it is, it is translated healed or cured. The notion is that one is doing something for the benefit of the other. One is, con so in all of the healing miracles where Jesus says he healed many and this word is used in Luke, you know what he means, right? He means that Jesus did work for the benefit of the other. Because they were lacking in health, Jesus served them. Doing something for the benefit of the other, supplying what is lacking. But this is a critical distinction that we must make if we're going to understand how we are to serve the Lord. We do not serve the Lord in such a way that we know we are benefiting him. We do not serve the Lord because the Lord lacks something that we can provide. We serve the Lord as those who yield to the Lord's will and do it. He is glorified by that, but he does not need us for him to be glorified. It's very important. When you make that meal and take it to a person, when you work security, when you run the soundboard, when you preach a sermon, when you encourage someone else, when you go over and help that friend who just got tornado damage last night, when you go and do that, you are not doing it because God lacks something that you can provide. 
You must do it because God commands us to love others, which the parable of the Good Samaritan says means we show mercy. That's what loving others looks like. You do it because God has commanded us to serve one another. God has commanded us to love one another. God has commanded us to do these things. And we as his people, the sheep of his shepherd, as his, of his pasture, yield to his will and gladly do it. God doesn't need, he gives. Now he goes on in verses 26 to 28 and it broadens out. So he does give to individuals life and breath and, and everything, but he also gives to nations. He gives them land. He gives them uh, uh, favor. He gives them power on the world stage at times. He takes it away. But all that he gives, if you notice in verse 27, is so that it will awaken a desire in us to find him. That's what that, that is at the beginning of verse 27. So he's already said he gives to men life and breath and everything. He gives nations. He has appointed their periods and boundaries. Why? That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. That feel their way toward him is, is, is kind of like a word you would use if you were trying to get a quarter that fell between your driver's side seat and the console in the front of your car and you reach you can't see anything but you're reaching down there trying to feel your way it's like grasping in the dark but you need that quarter or else you can't afford the soda you want to go into this gas station and get so you're reaching in there to try to get it don't don't not laugh you've done that all right so if you haven't I'll show you the right technique all right but God does not need. God gives. I just want to mention four brief applications before we look at the third thing about this independent God. Four applications of this notion that God does not need, he gives. First is actually in our giving. God commands us to give. God loves a cheerful giver. There's a movie... I, I don't remember all of it, so this is, don't consider this uh, a commendation. But there was a movie with Joe Pesci who played a homeless man on the campus of Harvard, campus of Harvard University, and uh, he starts interacting with these students. And he's standing there, and uh, one of the, the main characters walks up to him and he says, "You know what the greatest nation in the world is, kid?" And he says, "The United States." He said, "No, donation." That's what he says. This is not what God is doing. God is not clamoring for our money because he's short on cash. He's afraid he's not going to be able to make it to the end of the month if you don't give. That is not why God commands us to give. In fact, as we give, through our giving, God actually gives to us. God increases our faith in him as a provider when we give away the provision he's already given. God increases our humility to know that what I have is not my own. It is his. Quite frankly, he gives joy. If you are not in the regular habit of giving to people who are in need and giving you do not know this joy. Not the joy of, boy, because you, you don't, your right hand doesn't need to know what your left hand is doing, much less the person you gave it to. 
Can I just tell you that recently, Susan and I were given a very large gift because of the medical things that I'm walking through. I have no clue who gave it, but I can tell you, I can guarantee you this. The joy of being part of God working in another person's life is just, it's glorious. And if you haven't been there and done that, you are missing, not only are you disobedient, you're missing the joy that God gives through obedience. So what about worship? God doesn't need my worship. He doesn't need my voice. He doesn't need me to play this keyboard. But through our giving of praise, he gives to us, doesn't he? He refreshes our soul as the words we sing remind us of the God who is with us and who is for us and who has saved us and who will never forsake us. He humbles us as we remember that the God who is for us and the God who is with us and the God who saved us and the God who will never forsake us is God. He encourages us as we step out of the world for this time where we do not belong to step into this family where we do belong. God commands service. I've already talked about that. I will not go into that again. God commands us to love one another. Isn't that interesting? The God who needs nothing from us, who does not need us, he is the most free to love us. Every other love can like tend to, when I sit with a couple sitting in front of me talking, and I talk to them about loving the other person, do you know that I can't remember the last time someone said, oh, okay. Usually it's, but they don't love me. When we are in situations where we need other people, we just need them to love us, we need them to approve of us, we need them, that's called the fear of man, we need, we need, me, me, me. We are not free to love them as God has loved us. When we stop needing people's approval, we will be free to love them in ways that are incomparable. And that's just the beginning. Whatever God commands us to do, it's not because he needs it. The glorious thing is that in preaching the gospel and sharing it with your friends and me teaching and you teaching preschoolers or high schoolers or middle schoolers or old schoolers, whatever it is that you do for the Lord, however it is that you teach, here's the thing. It's not because God, God does, look, I'm very aware God does not need me standing here. But he delights to include us in his mission to the world. Imagine a father building, doing some home repair, building some piece of furniture, inviting their three-year-old child to come and help. Better yet, inviting Violet in this little car carrier to help bring Violet over in the car carrier and you put it next to the project and you say hammer in that nail 
Does dad actually need that infant, that two-year-old, that three-year-old, that eight-year-old for that giant project? No. But do you know what gives dads joy? Is to include their children in the work and to see the joy in their faces as they beam with delight that I got to help dad build something. God our Father does not need us, but he delights to include us and to give us great joy in serving him. Last thing. God, so God is not created, he creates. God does not need, he gives. Lastly, God will not overlook, he judges. This distinguishes him from all other gods because the gods of Athens have no capacity to judge. The, the Psalms tell us they have eyes, but they cannot see. So they can't see the sin of the world. They can't see the sin in our heart. They can't see what's actually wrong. They can't see right from wrong. They can't see anything. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They can't pronounce any judgment, much less just judgment. They can pronounce nothing. They can't speak. They can't see. They can't do anything. And the gods that we create for ourselves, whether it's our family, whether it's the notion of comfort, whether it's our career or money or retirement or power, did you know you will never answer to any of them? On the last day, none of them will call you to account. You will never face rebuke or punishment because your career because you didn't sacrifice enough for your career. You will never face rebuke or punishment because you didn't have the retirement that you should have. Never. There is only one who will hold us to account on that day. And he says, the times of ignorance, that is, uh, the past God overlooked, meaning God has not shown his full wrath at every instance of human ignorance and sin in the past. But now he commands all, men, all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Our independent God is also our righteous judge. Did you know that his independence actually is tied to his justice and his righteousness? When there's a problem in a company, all right? Problem in a company. Some problem employee. They may do an investigation, right? Find out what's going on. But when the problem gets big enough and when, there, when the law is involved, what may happen is they call for an independent investigation. One who is outside the company, who does not benefit from the company, whose well-being is not tied to the company whatsoever to come in. Why? So they have an unbiased look at what's going on and they can come to the right conclusion. Well, dear friends, on the last day, there is an independent investigation of us. The outcome of every individual human being, God's well-being does not depend on the outcome of every, in, every, every human being's outcome. He will be perfectly glorious forever into the future. 
so he can come because his well-being does not depend on us he comes and he judges in righteousness he will look at exactly who you are he will look exactly at the religion mass that you are putting on so that other people think I'm pretty good he will look exactly at where you are and all things Hebrews 4 says will be laid bare before him there will be no hiding on that day He will see and he will judge. And what he has overlooked in ignorance, there is coming a day when that ignorance will even be punished in the future. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead and on that day the only impartial judgment on sinful humanity is guilty you see one way to actually speak about sin is to talk in terms of independence because sin is essentially man declaring I do not need God I do not want God I will not live in dependence on God. Isn't this exactly what happened in the garden? Well, God is just holding out on me because this is the way to go. I will just do it myself. So rather than live in dependence on God's word, they, Adam and Eve went their own way, declared their independence, and thus the heart and the nature of all men and women and boys and girls everywhere from through all time has been declaration of independence. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for me to throw off this religion and just do it my own way, that's what we've done. And God's judgment in some ways is for him to say, you say you don't need me, you say you don't need my grace, you don't need my forgiveness, you don't need my mercy, you don't need my life. You don't mean you need me to share my life with you. Very well, you won't have me. And on that day, there will be no more overlooking, no more disregarding. Sinful and rebellious humanity will get what it deserves. Unending punishment of the wrath of God in hell. But the good news is that that day hasn't come yet. While those who do not believe even now are under the wrath of God, the day for the experience of the wrath of God has not yet come. And the great news is that the one who has been appointed judge of the living and the dead, who has been raised from the dead, is the very one who died for us, which was the whole reason he was dead in the first place. The independent God who needs us not one bit, loves us perfectly, and he loved us by coming into this world of dependence as in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Born as a dependent little baby, he breathed air that his body needed. He ate food that his body needed. He took naps on boats in the middle of storms because his body is exhausted. He gets worn out. He feels our dependence. He enters into our dependence. Why? To set us free from our independence, which will kill us in the end. 
And he died and he was raised again so that all who turn to him in faith would be set free from their sinful independence and the hell it will bring and be brought into the glorious dependence on the merits of Jesus Christ to save them. You see, to be dependent on ourselves is to be so short-sighted and so arrogant. But to be dependent on the Lord Jesus Christ is to know that He is the righteous Son of God. He is the righteous one who has made propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the world. And turning to Him, the one who has life in Himself will then give you life. God is our creator. He is not created. God is a gracious giver. He doesn't need us. God is a righteous judge, and he will not overlook. But he does love. Would you turn to him today? Let's pray. Our great and glorious God, we confess together that you and you alone are independent. You rely on no one or nothing for your existence. Your glory is perfect with or without us. You need nothing. And yet you delight to create us. You have delighted to save us, to give us salvation through Jesus Christ. You have delighted to send him to take the judgment that we deserve. Oh God, forgive us for our daily declarations of independence. When we look to ourselves, when we look to the gods that we've created by our own art and imagination to give us life and to give us meaning and to give us help and to give us hope. Father, give us, grant us repentance that we would turn from those things. Free us from our sinful declaration of independence and teach us what it means to need thee every hour. You are our one defense. You are our righteousness. Oh God, how we need you. For Jesus' sake and in his name we pray. Amen.